Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 145, The Crimean War, Part 5. Last time, we talked about the leaders of the military combatants of the Crimean War, the British, French, Sardinians, and Turks on one side, the Russians on the other. Now, we begin the fighting in earnest. But before I go on, if you're expecting blow-by-blow -blow accounts of the battles, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That is not something I feel is necessary or something I really want to do. And there are a number of really good books on the subject. And I really want to get more into the general picture of the war instead of delving into the minutia. If I did, we'd probably finish the Crimean War sometime next year. So, on with the story. The Danubian Campaign was the starting point of the Crimean War, and something I only briefly touched upon previously. It predated the entry of the British and the French. In May of 1853, Field Marshal Paskevich and Gorchakov led 80,000 Russian soldiers across the Pruth River into Moldavia and Wallachia. This, you should remember, is the same Pruth River that in July of 1711, Peter the Great found himself surrounded by a vastly larger Ottoman Empire and was lucky to have made it out alive. This time, the odds were just a little bit better, but not by much. The Ottomans, hearing of the troop movement, sent their forces northward, fortifying the strongholds of Vidin and Silistra, near the mouth of the Danube. This movement of large numbers of armed men made the neighboring Austrians very nervous. But there was no debate about who they were most concerned about. It was the Russians. Try as they might, diplomatic missions to Vienna failed to convince the Austrians to join with the Russians against the Turks. This is the same failed foreign policy that Nicholas I kept trying with the British. He just couldn't get it into his head why they didn't want to just carve up the collapsing Ottoman Empire. And the Austrians, my gosh, just a few years before, in 1848, the Russians helped you with the Hungarian uh, Revolution. But the Tsar just couldn't get into his head that Russia was now seen as a far greater threat than the Turks. Many men would suffer for those misconceptions. Austria, for its part, amassed over 280,000 men near Vidin, which dissuaded Russia from advancing. Nicholas was shocked, but realized they had to be careful in not antagonizing his former ally into joining in on the war against Russia. That would have been a war they could never have won. A number of battles ensued between Russian and Turkish forces, including the siege of Silistra between April 14th and June 23rd, 1854. None of the battles were decisive, but the death toll on the Russians was in particular staggering. Of the 80,000 men who crossed the Pruth, only half of them survived, most dying of disease and not combat. Nicholas and his generals wanted to press on and incite the Orthodox inhabitants to join them in rebellion against their Turkish masters, but the populace was reticent to do it as they feared reprisals if the Russians were unsuccessful, and this had happened a number of times in history, so they were very justified. But then something happened that jolted the Russians back into reality. The British and French were in Varna, a Black Sea town in what is now Bulgaria, and they were preparing an invasion of the Crimea. On July 26, 1854, 
Tsar Nicholas ordered withdrawal from the principalities after suffering a series of defeats by the troops led by Omar Pasha. The only stronghold left defended by Russian troops was in northern Dobruja, a region of what is now Romania and Bulgaria. The Austrians, of course, they came into the region as a peacekeeping force, but also as a reminder to the Russians that should they have any thoughts of returning, they'd be there to greet them. The Russians never did. So the Allies are sitting in Varna and are preparing for an invasion of Crimea. They are firm in their belief that the war would be over quickly and decisively. This is the same mindset that would be found between the combatants of World War One, And that makes it kind of you know, surprising that in World War One, they thought they could do this, where they had the experience in the Crimean War, but I guess many people forget history. So now it's the morning of September 14th, 1854, and the invasion forces begin landing at Kalamita Bay in the Crimea. At 7 a.m., the French made it first on this sunny morning. They landed three infantry divisions with very few horses, though, which made their landings pretty easy. The British, on the other hand, started at 9 a.m. and had a much harder time as they had a large cavalry. Uh, the horses aren't just going to jump into the water, so they had to be kind of floated in on these barges, and it was really difficult. And also, the rains began in the early afternoon, beginning with a light drizzle and then turned into a deluge. While researching the landing, I was really shocked to find out that the 27,000 men of the British Army had no tents. Lots of horses, but no shelter. Now, the French, on the other hand, had almost no horses, but lots of tents. As for the Ottomans, well, <laughs> they hadn't either. The misery must have been pretty intense. To make matters worse, the Allies forgot to bring anything to transport the sick or wounded. As one war correspondent put it based on interviews with medical officers, quote, Do make a note of this. Bye. They've landed this army without any kind of hospital transport, litters or carts, or anything. Everything was ready at Varna. Now with all this cholera and diarrhea about, there are no means of taking the sick down to the boats. Yes, cholera was rampant, caused by the bacterium Vibrio cholera. It was a deadly disease whose cause was not known until the Italian anatomist Filippo Pacini isolated it coincidentally enough, in 1854. That same year, British physician John Snow found a link between contaminated water and outbreaks of the disease. His work, though, wasn't generally accepted for another 30 years, so it would be of no help to the armies of the Crimea. Now, the Russians, for their part, were acutely aware of the dangers of cholera as an epidemic between 1847 and 1851 had killed more than one million countrymen. Because of this, it amazes us today that no planning for this was done before the invasion. Cholera was to be the scourge of all sides in this conflict for its duration, killing more people than the actual fighting. With the initial forces all landing, the march to Sevastopol began. Now, it was some 30 miles away, and there were columns of men began to march. The generals and the men in the field of the Allied armies were convinced that before winter set in, they would take Sevastopol, and by Christmas, the troops would be home. There were letters to that effect. There were cables sent to London and Paris. They were sure this was going to be quick and easy. 
But now, instead of rain, the French, British, and Ottoman armies were met with blistering heat. On the right, we have the French, whose men were kind of used to this kind of marching and the heat because of their recent Algerian campaigns in Africa. The British on the left were utterly miserable and began to abandon their helmets and gray coats. As Paget wrote while coming up upon the scene, quote, This went on gradually increasing until ere a mile or two passed, the stragglers were lying thick on the ground. And it is no exaggeration to say that the last two miles resembled a battlefield. As the columns slowly headed toward their destination, they encountered small bands of Cossacks sent out to scout the enemy and harass them, but not fully engage the invaders. The British and French, for their part, sent out cavalry to reconnoiter as well. They discovered that the Russians were gathering their forces nearby at the River Alma. Russian Field Marshal Menshikov, on his own initiative, decided to make a defensive stand at the Alma. He felt that holding the northern approach to Sevastopol here would offer the best position to defeat the Allies, send them scurrying back home, and he felt because he had the high ground, this was ideal for a defensive stand. Raglan and St. Arnaud, aware of the Russian positions, met at the British commander's temporary headquarters to design a battle plan. Unfortunately, St. Arnaud was beginning to show signs of being very ill. A problem, another problem came up as the Allies had very poor maps of the area and little solid intelligence as to where the Russian troops lie in wait. The Russians, for their part, of course, because this was their land, had very good maps and good intelligence going on because of the Cossacks. The evening of September 19, 1854, saw the men from both sides preparing for battle, with fires being lit all through the countryside. As Captain Chodowicz of the Russian army describes the scene, quote, As it became dark, we could see plainly enough the enemy's fires on the river Boldenach. I lay down in my hut of branches and tried to sleep, but in vain, notwithstanding the fatigue of the previous day. I rose about three o'clock. It was still dark. The soldiers were collected around the huge fires they had kindled with the plunder of the village of Bourlioc, and orders had been given to burn all the huts in the branches which had added to the number of fires. After a short time, I went up the hill to take a peep at the biovac of the Allied armies. Little, however, was to be seen but the fires. And now and then a dark shadow, as someone moved past them. All was still, and had little appearance of the coming strife. These were both armies lying, as it were, side by side. How many, or who, would be sent to their last account? It would be impossible to say. The question involuntarily thrust upon me. Should I be one of that number? As I mentioned earlier, I won't be going into the details of the Battle of Alma, but I'm going to be pointing out some important facts and events within it. Suffice it to say, it was a rout by the Allies, with the Russians giving up the high grounds because Menshikov didn't think they could climb the high walls to his flank. 
here are some other reasons and some really important ones why the Russians had to make a hasty retreat. And one of the main items that was likely the tipping point in favor of the Allies in the battle, and that is the mini-ball, designed by French Army Captains Montgomery and Henri-Gustave Dalvange in 1848, it was to play crucial roles in both the American Civil War and the Crimean War. It was a conical, cylindrical, soft lead bullet with exterior grease-filled grooves that greatly increased the accuracy and range of the riflemen using it. The Russians, who did not have the mini-ball, had to wait until their target was around 300 paces away to fire, while the British and the French could fire accurately at the astonishing distance of 1,200 paces. You just cannot underestimate the advantage this gave the Allies. One real big problem the Russians had was Field Marshal Menshikov. He acted like this army was an independent fiefdom, as Royal puts it. He didn't talk to any of the military people in St. Petersburg or Warsaw, and he sent direct orders down the command line with no discussions. His word was all that mattered, and woe be it for anyone who displayed independent initiative. This is really a major reason for the Russian losses at the Battle of Alma. On the Russian side, the casualties were grave. Of the 33,000 men in the field, 5,709 died. For the French and British, out of 28,000, 3,342 were killed. But most importantly, St. Arnaud was to die four days after the battle on September 29th, leaving a momentary gap in French leadership. Another thing to point out about the Battle of Alma that was to be a recurring theme of the Crimean War as well as the American Civil War, and this is the real tragedy of this war, is that if you were going to be a casualty, you would hope it would be a quick death. As Royals put it in his book on the war, quote, the most fortunate casualties were those who received direct hits from the Russian artillery fire. They died instantly and were beyond suffering. For those who received abdominal wounds or had limbs torn off, there was a long, slow wait for the orderlies to pick them up off the battlefield, and then an uncertain future as doctors patched them up behind the lines. Many survived the operations, only to die a few days later from post-operative infection, for battlefield surgery was still a dirty business. Surgeons operated with unsterilized instruments. Wounds were dressed with lint from discarded linen, and operating tables were usually encrusted with the blood, blood and detritus from previous patients. Then, together with those suffering from cholera, many were dispatched by ship to the unsuitable British military hospital at Scutari, which had been established in a Turkish cavalry barracks, and where conditions quickly became overcrowded and insanitary. It sounds appalling, and it was, but the conditions were only marginally worse than those endured in civilian hospitals at home, where antisepsis was still in its infancy. Sometimes makes you wonder how, you know, humankind survived on all of this. Now, for those of you who are connoisseurs of the history of the American Civil War, you can see the corollaries immediately. Except there's one difference which I just discovered in researching this podcast. In the American Civil War, and I did not know this, there were almost no outbreaks of cholera. This was strictly in the Crimean War as opposed to the American Civil War. Kind of an interesting uh, difference. 
Well, as for the Battle of Alma itself, it was marked by a series of errors of judgment, indecisiveness, and mistakes, many of which were committed by Menshikov, but not him exclusively, as both sides blundered repeatedly. What really turned the tide was a really brave decision by the British commander Lord Raglan to move to the front line and rally his and the French troops. I mean, he ran back and forth on his horse. If anybody had remembered seeing the movie Dances with Wolves, and at the beginning, the Civil War battle where the lead actor goes back and forth on his horse, just daring the sharpshooters to hit him. And it really rallied the American troops and, you know, just gave him so much energy. But this was Lord Raglan himself, the commander of the British troops, and he moved up to the front. Now, had any of the Russians had a sniper nearby, Raglan would have been an easy target. Instead, he rallied his troops, turned a close battle into the route it would become, and he pushed the Russians off their superior defensive positions. Within three hours of the major part of the fighting, it was over. By 4 p.m., the Russians were in full retreat, and the Allies in the field must have been elated that things went so well and the battle lasted such a short time. As we shall see, this may have been a curse instead of a blessing. But what happens afterwards is the French and the cavalry of the British start arguing. Like, why the heck aren't we going after them? Why aren't we continuing pressing? Why aren't we just going in the... Raglan was like, wait a minute. You can't just send light cavalry out there. Those Russians have some pretty good cavalry of themselves. And they're heavy cavalry. And they are out there. And we can't just send you out there because our men are too tired to back you up. And so this argument kept on going back and forth. But Raglan, of course, was the commander, and he took over. Now, back in London and Paris, news reached an excited populace. Many thought, hey, that's the Battle of Alma. I told you, it foretold the future. Sevastopol would have to be easy pickings for the Allies. Well, as we know, nothing could have been further from the truth. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as we cover the Russians' retreat, the missed Allied opportunities, and the Battle of Balaclava, and the famous charge of the Light Brigade. The, you know, as always, I'm going to tell you, join us on Facebook. It's, it's really got some great uh, discussions going on, and so it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy it, and I get some great ideas from you, the listeners who join me there. So... Duke, stop by where you can ask some questions, uh, leave comments, join the discussions. You know, we've had one about whether Putin blinked in uh, the recent events in the Ukraine. Uh, or, excuse me, Ukraine. should not be saying the Ukraine. I've been corrected many times on that one. Uh, so, as always, das vidanya y spasiba bolshoya.